and welcome back to another episode of the Harry Potter Book Club. I'm Trevor. I'm Alex. I'm Matt. I'm Crystal. I'm Vera. And I'm Sylvia. This week, we are going to look at chapter 12 uh, in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, The Mirror of Erised. Uh, we begin, it's December of 1991, uh, and Christmas is coming. But before we get into the substance of this chapter, uh, we wanted to address... Uh, an email that we had from a listener. Uh, this email comes from James, and it says, What do you think Hagrid does during holiday breaks? So this is a fitting question as we're hitting Christmas in the story. So, team, what do you all think Hagrid does to fill his time during the holiday breaks? Hmm. Over him, I'd be going out to the Forbidden Forest, you know, just... <laughs> Trekking through there, you know, taking care of unicorns, things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's be what I do. I mean, I would imagine there's a good bit of game keeping, groundskeeping to be done over the summer to get ready for the students again. They have Hagrid do a lot of busy work, so there's probably like cleaning out the Quidditch Stadium and all kinds of nonsense. I think to keep from getting lonely, we know he goes to the pub a lot, and probably when there's not as much community around, you know, he gets fluffy off of a Greek guy he meets in a pub. A lot of seedy things come to Hagrid through connections at the pub, which just indicates that he he goes out and goes into town. That is interesting, though, because we know that Hagrid's hut is on the Hogwarts grounds, but do all the teachers stay at Hogwarts year-round? Because we know they all have rooms there. They obviously stay during the school year. But is it just Hagrid left keeping the grounds over the summer, or like does Dumbledore stay there over the summer? Mm-hmm. You know, we don't is have any indication there? that the professors have residences elsewhere. Right. I mean, they certainly aren't on the train from unless, platform yeah. nine and three quarters. Yeah. They're um, there greeting the students when they get there. Uh huh. Most of the students leave during you know December break here, and you still have, as far as we know, I mean, all the professors are there. They don't really mention professors leaving so you would think at least some would leave because there are students that still stay but yeah. i don't know you know one thing that has just occurred to me is that all the professors are single and have no families mm-hmm. I, I remember rolling uh, releasing on pottermore the story of professor mcgonagall it's a really tragic story but uh, the takeaway was that she had no family. We know that Trelawney can't afford to be kicked out because she has no place else to go. Mm-hmm. Hagrid has no connection except for a giant brother that, at this point, he doesn't know that he has. Snape. Snape has a place at Spitter's End where he goes over the summer because we've been there. Does he? When he was a child. And in book he, six. Yeah, in book six, he, he lives there. That's where um, Bella and Narcissa come to find him Ah. when they do the unbreakable vow. Well, there we go. So he does go home over the summer. It makes sense, though, for him to have a second lodging just because the whole double agent thing, like to have some some privacy and some separation probably makes that easier. I also always felt like he kept that place because it reminded him of Lily, where he lived when he knew Lily. Hmm. Because we know he lived there as a child, too, because Petunia says... The kid who lives on Spinner's End or something rude. Yeah. <clears throat> At the same time, I mean, we know that his family life was terrible and his, his father was abusive, right? 
or Inferred, at least there was yeah. lots of lots of shouting and, and um, really terrible childhood in that home. So it's strange that he would want to keep it if he had the means to find a new one. Well, what that proves to us, though, is it is possible for a Hogwarts to pro- professor to have another place <laughs> right. to live. Uh, even though it does seem that most of them have nowhere else to go. Right. At least we're not given any any hint that they do. Yeah, I would assume that as far as Hagrid is concerned, he's got plenty to keep himself busy. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that in these early stories, before he becomes the Care of Magical Creatures professor, we get a lot of insight into how he's filling his time. We're just told he's the groundskeeper, and we see him periodically as the plot is advancing in various ways. But, I mean, with as many acres as mm-hmm. Hogwarts is taking, surely there's stuff on the grounds that needs yeah. keeping. We saw him in last chapter. He was uh, defrosting the brooms, and then we've got... He's getting a, a Christmas tree. You know, I assume all the Christmas trees, uh, you know, for the Great Hall. So there's things yeah. that I guess are just not being said. Interior decorating. Interior decorating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clearly Hagrid's the one you want to leave in charge of that. Yeah. We can reach up really high. Yeah, at least the heavy lifting part of it is definitely a Hagrid job. Well, with our thoughts on Hagrid's holiday breaks (laughs) out of the way, uh, we begin Chapter 12, The Mirror of Erised. And uh, one of the first details that we're given uh, is that the Weasley twins were punished for bewitching several snowballs so that they followed Quirrell around, (laughs) bouncing off the back of his turban. The first time you read through this story, of course, it's a throwaway detail. You laugh at Fred and George. The second time through, you read it with new eyes, and you're like, wow, these are probably the only guys in the history of the wizarding world to ever win a snowball fight with Voldemort. Yeah. Well, let's see here. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Malfoy immediately comes in and says, I do feel so sorry for all those people who have to stay at Hogwarts for Christmas because they're not wanted at home. Mm-hmm. I found that uh, a revealing uh, comment from a Malfoy character who hasn't figured prominently lately in the narrative. He, he's sort of thrust back into the spotlight here, um, really harping on this insider versus outsider status. It's not just, I feel sorry for the people who have to stay at Hogwarts at Christmas. It's because they're not wanted at home, uh, because they're rejects, because they're faulty. Malfoy feeds throughout... Um, the books on feeling like an insider, whether because of his blood, because of the status of his family, because of his wealth, because of his position of favor with uh, Snape at Hogwarts. Um, He's an insider who is always uh, gauging himself uh, in reference to the outsiders who are unlike him. Uh, And it's just interesting that if, if you listen to his comments uh, throughout, 
He's always pointing out to the outsiders that that's what you really are. You have no place to belong. And you also see that he attacks Ron, um, you know, making fun of him because his family doesn't have money, and of course his family does. It goes back to what you were saying, Trevor, about he's the insider. He has money, he has what he thinks is important in the wizarding world, and we see Ron, you know, this is definitely a sore spot for him. Um, and we see, you know, that he wishes he had, you know, throughout all the books, you know, there are times where you'll see Ron very sad, just saying like, I wish we had money, Mm -hmm. you know, he'll even admit it to Harry. I wish, you know, I wasn't poor. Um, and so Malfoy is just very mean spirited and going after, you know, someone's weak points. I thought it was interesting that she chose to place Malfoy taunting them in this particular chapter because, like Trevor said, he hasn't really been featured recently. But this is the chapter where we're going to learn what the desires of Ron's heart are. So he's taunting him specifically about his lack of status and wealth. And yet when Ron looks in the mirror, it's the thing he sees. And the same thing with Harry. You know, Ron or Draco taunts Harry about not having a proper family. And when he looks in the mirror, what he sees is his family. So it's interesting that... Draco goes right to the heart of what yeah. both of them desire most. Yeah, he doesn't just make fun of them. He makes fun of them accurately. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, this conflict at the beginning, again, something that you can read quickly over and you can think, oh, Malfoy's a jerk. We knew that already. Let's get to the new stuff. Um, but this conflict is its own mirror of Erised. It reveals Malfoy's desires because we're told that Harry is the seeker. Um, Nobody thought Draco's uh, insults were funny. And Malfoy is now jealous and angry. Um, Rowling gives away something here. And we could have assumed that Malfoy was an envious, covetous, jealous sort of fellow from just his behavior before. But to be told outright by an omniscient narrator that he is jealous of what Harry has um, shows us what it is that Malfoy wants. He's not just an insider who taunts outsiders He and, and is secure in his position. Uh, he's an insider who measures himself by outsiders, Mm -hmm. and who is totally insecure because the moment somebody has the thing that he wants more than anything else in the world, he can't take it. And he's driven to these really destructive behaviors by jealousy um, and anger. This scene really, that that point really reminds me of the Count of Monte Cristo when you see the description um, of the conflict between the two main characters there when the, the protagonist asks why, the villain says, because you're the son of a clerk and I'm not supposed to want to be you. Mm. And that was, that was the first movie that really made me think like, wow, mm. how jealousy can drive mm. you to hate so deeply. Mm. Um, Even someone that seems to be lower than yourself. Exactly right. And that's the same sort of deal here. Mm-hmm. That's super profound. One thing I think generationally that I think of is this just reminds me in book two of the fight in um, 
why am I blanking on the bookstore? But um, just when Malfoy and uh, Arthur Weasley just have their little tip, because it's just like yeah. we see it here, and then we see the almost the exact same argument happening with their fathers. Um, so that just occurred to me that um, this these things, just these prejudices and uh, issues come down. And that to me was such a, you bringing that up highlights just how British this book is and how... <laughs> class conflict pervades so much of British literature and like right here you see the conflict between the the working class and the noble that is just everywhere it seems um, in British literature highlighted again that the fathers and neither fathers nor sons can escape it I don't know what it was but that one phrase jealous and angry uh, first of all it it sets the stage for an entire chapter that is dominated by um, the power of desire, the centrality of desire, uh, and the fact that the heart's desires set the course for all of life. But one of the real uh, clear sub-themes is that those desires often have really dark consequences. There are dark sides to them. And we see that immediately with Malfoy's desires, even in just that one phrase. Uh, we see that he, he's not just being um, antagonistic. He is conflicted because he wants something. He yearns for something. He doesn't possess it. Harry does. And it drives him. Um, to live, behave, speak, undoubtedly feel in these really divided, um, destructive manners. And it makes me almost pity Draco, Mm -hmm. because he's revealed to be quite an insubstantial person. What I mean by that is, he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't have an identity. He has an identity that he's striving to create. And he's reaching for things, yearning for things, longing for things, but the moment he doesn't get them and someone else does, any prospect of joy is destroyed and he must attack. We're actually going to see that in other places later in this chapter, Um, but it it just revealed that the, the, the thing that keeps coming to mind is that Malfoy has a derivative sort of happiness. He doesn't have a happiness that can rest in who he is, what he has. He has a happiness that depends on what he has in comparison to others. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of a C.S. Lewis quote uh, that pride is always comparative in nature. Pride never delights in having the thing. It delights in having more of it than someone else. Mm-hmm. And I think Draco is... A literary example of that. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is even though Draco's taunting Harry, he says, I don't feel sorry for myself at all. Like, this is going to be the best Christmas I ever have. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, with the Dursleys, he's never had what we would consider like a true Christmas with gifts and celebrations with family. So, He's looking forward to it, regardless of Draco's taunt about, you know, not being home with his family. Well, again, Harry, I think, has seen it, you know, 
uh, he's seen someone else be given gifts, you know, with him sitting in the background, maybe under the stairs. And yeah, you're right. This is the first time and we see that he does get gifts. And I mean, it's a very heartwarming chapter in a lot of ways. One thing about the sentence that Trevor was talking, the the jealous and angry um, Malfoy going back to taunt Harry about not having, I think the word, the adjective used is proper family. And I love that use of that word because he doesn't have what we would consider a proper family with a mom and dad and, you know, cat and sister or whatever. But he has a family, so he says, you know, I may not have a proper, it's almost like Harry defending himself there. I don't have a proper family, but he's starting to find his family in Hagrid and Hermione and Ron, and I just think that's really beautiful. Well, when Ron lashes out at Malfoy, Snape again swoops in and snatches five points from Gryffindor. We pointed out in our last episode that Harry immediately lost the five points that he had gained from the Mountain Troll experience. And here, Ron's Mountain Troll points are gone (laughs) in the snap of a finger. And once again, it's Severus Snape who's taking them away. So now they're they're back to even um, from their act of heroism. For having saved someone's life, they got five points. While breaking rules. While breaking rules. Which is always the case with Harry and Ron. It's always a caveat. They're always doing something they shouldn't have been doing in order to do the heroic thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and as McGonagall says, it was mostly dumb luck dumb anyway. Luck. Sure. Well, we hear that they they have been going to the library <laughs> in their off hours looking for... Nicholas Flamel's name. Harry knows that he's read the name somewhere, and they've been searching all over in all sorts of volumes about great wizards and notable magical names, and nobody's been able to come across Flamel's name anywhere. I don't know about you, I found that detail remarkably implausible. Mm. Yeah. Um, Nicholas Flamel was mentioned on the back of a chocolate frog card, mm-hmm. and... His name should be everywhere. He, like, he's not in all of these volumes about notable names. And these guys don't have the research skills in the library to, like, use an index or some sort of search function. I mean, I think later what ends up being the the twist is that he's super old. And they were looking at all these 20th century and our time books. That's a clue. But he's still around and he's working with Dumbledore. In alchemy, right, and right. so he's still making contributions. Exactly. If he's on a chocolate frog cart, it seems like he would still be distinguished in a lot of these books, even though he's old. <laughs> but that ends up being the twist that we find later, right? Yes. I mean, at least according to Wikipedia, Flamel is not simply a character made up for Harry Potter. Nicholas Flamel was, in fact, a 13th, 14th century uh, Parisian alchemist who according to legend, achieved the creation of the Philosopher's Stone and with that immortality. Um, I think it's very... I mean, we'll learn later on the twist that Rowling adds to the Philosopher's Stone and the way that the immortality is achieved um, from the original. But the way that it's originally done, hes it's just a done deal. Like, he's oh, he made the Philosopher's it. Stone, he used it, and that's it. Hmm. He lives forever. 
Um, he has obviously not substantiated these claims in about 600 years. Um, and the texts attributed to her, him uh, are copies that are dated to about 200 years after when he was meant to have lived. He was meant to have died. I mean, assuming that he did not achieve immortality sometime around 1418. Um, but yeah, the texts are from hundreds of years later attributing these sources to him. Mm. That's interesting. Well, the thing that stuck out to me in this particular um, picture here of the trio searching for Nicholas Flamel was how each of them searched in their own yes. character traits. Mm -hmm. So like Hermione makes this list of things that she thinks would most likely contain Nicholas Flamel. Ron wanders down pulling off completely random books just nonchalantly with no real reason behind it. And Harry, of course, thinks if it's worth knowing, you've got to break a rule to find it, so he wanders to the restricted section. Love so that. it's just building each of their character traits more and more and showing us like who they are and what we can expect from them. <laughs> the one thing that occurred to me is how quickly so much of their research would have gone if there was a sympathetic librarian. <laughs> Because <laughs> Madame Pence is just just like an old vulture. She's <laughs> terrible, and they don't want to ask her any questions. They would find out. Like, she would be like, oh, Flamel, it's right over here. But they don't want to trust her. Well, and it's one of those scenarios where it's almost like they think they can't ask anybody because it'll look suspicious. Mm -hmm. But if they just stopped acting suspicious, yeah. nobody would ask any questions. Fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, we get to Christmas morning, mm -hmm. and Harry and Ron wake up uh, to find packages at the foot of both of their beds. It's just so feel-good. I, I mean, just, mm -hmm. just a feel-good chapter. Like, to have him get gifts for the first time. And then, the f skipping ahead, and we'll go back, but just like the food, the feast that they get mm -hmm. to have. How is everyone at Hogwarts not just... You know, overweight because I mean, it sounds amazing the yeah. feast. But circling back, Harry gets the coolest gift ever: invisibility cloak. Yeah, so oh, yeah. the wooden flute. Oh, chocolate flute! Wooden flute. Ron drops his every Weasley flavor sweater. beans, mm -hmm. and uh, that happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that he got a Weasley sweater. To me, that was just like. The the next sort of sign that the Weasleys are incorporating him into the family, mm -hmm. and yes, we know that he has been friends with Ron throughout this whole season, but we don't really hear much about the correspondence between Ron and his family. Mm -hmm. And there was only just a brief period at the very beginning where he meets some of the other members of Ron's family, mm -hmm. but that she would take the trouble to knit a sweater for a boy. She barely knows, mm -hmm. and I mean, I don't know. I don't know if any of you guys went to summer camp or something else like that, um, but I used to when I was little, and they required, they like made us write a letter at least every week home. And that was a pain. <laughs> and that was not something I enjoyed doing. And it was around the same age as Harry and Ron are right now. So to think that they... Super excited and engaged with 
engaged with all their friends and all the things that they're learning at school would take the time to write home to I don't know. I think it's, I would want to tell my parents that Harry Potter was my best friend. Yes. I think I would be interested for people to know that at home. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. I mean, but particularly as I try as I try to brothers. distinguish myself among my brothers, that's, I think I would want them point. to know I, that. That's a fair point. Fair point. But yeah. I did often find myself reflecting, Alex, like what you were saying about like what did Ron say to his parents about Harry? Yeah. yeah. Like what what made Mrs. Weasley want to make Harry that sweater, other well, than just knowing he doesn't have a mother to make him a sweater? Well, he did tell. Uh, Ron told his mother that he didn't think that Harry was going to be getting a lot of gifts Mm -hmm. um, in this chapter. And, you know, that that motherly instinct of, like, I cannot bear for a friend, you know, of my child's to not get a gift. I mean, it shows that motherly instinct. And he'll naturally see her as a mother, you know, later on throughout later books. Well, I read that line differently. I read it like, Harry doesn't expect to get a gift from me, like, as in Ron. Not mm. from oh. anybody. I read that line differently. Yeah, but you're right. If that's if he says, I don't think Harry's expecting to get a get gifts. Yes. Yeah. Of course, Mrs. Weasley would have some fudge. Yeah. What else can I send you that I can think of? Right. I I also love that this is kind of a unique Christmas for the Weasleys because this is really the only year that we see them not all together as a family, and it works so well as a plot device for Harry to have a family this first year. Um, because it is sort of early in their friendship for Ron to be like, come on home with me. Um, but for Ron and the twins and Percy, <laughs> you know, whatever, to, to all be with Harriet Hogwarts and for him to actually have that experience of family over Christmas is just really important, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well... I really enjoyed, of course, his invisibility invisibility cloak that he got. You know, it's his coolest gift, you know, I think, that he got. But I love the way she describes it. It's shiny, silvery cloth. It was uh, strange to touch, like water woven into the material. Mm-hmm. He says uh, a little bit later on that uh, the material just flowed over his hand, smoother than silk, light as air. I mean, I just try to imagine touching, you know, this material and... Smoother than silk, lighter than air. It's, I, I don't know. It, it's a, it seems like a, a, just an incredible gift and incredible material. And of course, there's the mystery behind it as well. I think the color green is used to describe it. No, but the color green, <laughs> if those of you that have been listening, I did notice there, mm-hmm. uh, um, Harry's sweater is emerald and Ron's. Ron's sweater is maroon, so there's that kind of that red and green going on again. But I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Alex so is on board. I, I, don't, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't want to bring uh, it up again. But yes, hey, it's no. there. Is the you is, are his green eyes? No, they're not because they're from Lily. I was gonna say, could the green eyes be an indication but, of Voldemort within him? Hold on, but, but no, they're not. Yes, they're from Lily. But is that not the connection then between him and Snape? The head of Slytherin? Yeah. Which loops y'all back around. I think we're stretching. That's, too deep. that's way too yeah. deep. We're stretching. I was just talking about the color of their sweaters. I don't know if you guys are talking about <laughs> Matt, in order for me to get on board with your color idea, you're uh-huh. going to have to tell me what it all means. Like, give right. me something. I'll let you know at the very end of this book. I'll let you know what the color Oh, at the end of this one. Okay. Whoa, right. wow. Well, nice. That you. buys you a little time. It does. Just a couple months. Not quite enough. A hundred fat roast turkeys mm-hmm. for like twenty people. 
<laughs> I mean, how many people are at this feast? They did have turkey sandwiches for dinner, too. Yeah, that's amazing, though. Well, 100 fat roast turkeys. I thought of this as an example where the elves might be putting things a little bit more in their favor. They're serving the, the wizard's needs, of course. Oh, you think they get the scraps down there? Surely. Surely. <laughs> they have to get the scraps. But if there's a lot of extra leftovers, well, it's a shame. But I think that's who they... I might need you to Google us, Alex, but platters of chipolatas. Yeah, what's a chipolata? Chipolata. I thought about chipolatas today and wondered what they were. While Alex (laughs) is on that task, uh, I think one of the fun details was about the party favors in the wizard crackers. Mm. So I, I was never really familiar with these things until I married Sylvia and she demanded that at Christmas we would have these party, party snappers. Poppers. Party poppers. So you pull the string and it... There's mm-hmm. gunpowder and it well, pops. Well, it says it's going to pop. It like... Snaps. Yeah. Fizzles out and mm-hmm. like gravity takes over and these little uh, cheap prizes pour out. But you get these paper crowns and so my entire family at Sylvia's behest is sitting with different color paper paper crowns around the Christmas dinner table. And then I hear that oh, that's yeah. exactly what Dumbledore is doing. Yeah, my family did the same. But they're but they're real like legitimate hats, like a yeah. top hat and a, a bonnet. bonnet. Yeah, but yeah. it also says these fantastic party favors were nothing like the feeble Muggle ones mm-hmm. that the Dursleys usually bought. And I was saying, like the feeble Muggle ones that my family normally has. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> with, I buy <laughs> with jokes that don't actually make grammatical sense. Uh, little toys that break immediately and paper crowns, but. Harry makes off with a wizard's chess set? That's yeah. expensive. How does that and get into good. a wizard cracker? And Percy breaks his tooth on a sickle, so they're yeah. like giving uh-huh. out money to Yeah, in the, in the food, yeah. in the pudding. Well, yeah. isn't, isn't See, that... I read That's sickle, a New Year's tradition. Yeah. and I thought it was like a harvesting knife. <laughs> and I was like, man, little, that's little different. <laughs> and the pudding. I mean, hey, you don't think it'd be sticking <laughs> out of the pudding? <laughs> Listen... I don't know why that's what I thought, but it went it went along with our theme that we pointed out that Hogwarts is a really dangerous place. It's really place. dangerous. I forgot. But I mean, for imagine the moment, if that sickle got lodged in your throat. I know it. Uncomfortable. Yeah, the money explanation makes way more sense of that detail. Wow. And it is that is a New Year's tradition, yeah. at least here. Mm-hmm. Like my grandma used to put a dime in the black eyed pea. That's kinda what I thought. Whoever about. gets it is mm-hmm. supposed to have like good luck for the rest of the year. They raw yeah. before Lent. Like right. I know there's definitely worth more when dimes pace. actually had silver in them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so another fun thing we see at the oh. Christmas party is all before we get to that. Uh, Chipolatas. Oh, you found it. They are a type of fresh sausage created in France, uh, first appearing in the 1903 edition of Escolier's Le Garde Culinaire. Uh, they are prepared uh, relatively thin and short. Uh, most Americans would recognize them as breakfast sausage. If you were to not like get the patty, but sort of the link version of American breakfast sausage, fried up, thin and short, um, and long. So they're just sausages. That's okay. what you're talking about. All right. For Christmas dinner. Typically made from coarse ground pork seasoned with salt and pepper. All right. Okay. Sign me up. Okay. So we also see all the teachers having a grand old time at the uh, Christmas party. Mm. In particular, Hagrid. 
has been drinking quite a bit and then kisses Professor McGonagall on the cheek, which, out of character, she giggles and blushes, which is really cute. That is it's really a cute, cute moment. Drunk teachers, for some reason, is a really cute moment when you're a kid. I'm not sure why that's not upsetting, but... <laughs> well, she it's just like her letting her hair down, kind of, yeah. when, when we never see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I left out a detail from earlier. Apparently, <laughs> particularly in the United Kingdom, chipolatas frequently appear as part of Christmas dinner okay. wrapped in bacon. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Sausages mm-hmm. wrapped in bacon. Sausages wrapped in bacon. Okay. Sorry. All right, Can't HPBC. possibly leave that out. That we'll be really doing that important. soon, and we'll upload some pictures. For all of our fans. <laughs> for the fans. Yeah. For the fans. I do, if we can, just go back to the cloak for a moment mm-hmm. and him receiving it, because I think that the cloak is super symbolic, especially with Dumbledore giving it to mm-hmm. him. So first I thought it was symbolic because it's really the first like thing of his dad's that he gets, and it's his first connection to his parents that we actually see, other than Quidditch, which is not really physical. This is the first physical thing of his family's he has. So I think it was sweet that he got that for his first Christmas. Um, but then I think that Dumbledore giving him this uh, tool for rule breaking sort of shows that Dumbledore has a lot of trust in him and is willing to let him try his hand because there aren't many 11 year old boys who would receive a cloak of an invisibility and not use it for rule breaking. And it's just interesting. I think it kind of, Sylvia has mentioned before this theme of like Dumbledore really not watching out for Harry in the whoa, best of whoa, ways. Whoa, whoa, He says in his note, use it well. Well, I'm going so. there. That's, that's my next line, is he does say use it well, but use it well as relative to an 11-year-old versus a 100-year-old person. So At least. it's, you know, use it well as relative, and I, I think that it was probably a dangerous gift. Um, so I'm curious to see what you all think of that. But he does say, again, in Dumbledore fashion, it is time it was returned to you. Why? I mean, Dumbledore, I feel like, is this you know, puppet master, and he sees things that no one else sees, and he realizes that it is now time that this is returned to you. I mean, maybe it was more of an emotional thing. Harry needed that. I don't know. But obviously it comes in very handy. Yeah, my whole premise is that Dumbledore puts, he strategically and intentionally and deliberately puts Harry in danger, and all three of them, because um, being aware of the prophecy and sort of knowing, basically Harry's going to survive until this thing plays itself out, like there's almost this hand of like fate, the cards are set, and and so he's going to let him go through these situations with the trust that Harry will be fine and it will teach him. Yeah. Um, so, so that's sort of my perspective in the long run is that he has this long-term mindset and kind of foresight to know Harry's going to survive until some, at some point he may not, but he's going to get to where he needs to be to have that final standoff. We also know that Dumbledore, up until this moment, has had two of the Deathly Hallows in his possession. The Elder Wand and the Invisibility Cloak. I read that note wondering if it is time it was returned to you doesn't mean it's time when you need it so much as it's time that it got out of my hands. Because we learn that Dumbledore has struggled in the past with the pursuit of power 
that the Deathly Hallows represents and enables. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if he has the self-awareness and wherewithal to take this opportunity to to get rid of the invisibility, get it out of his hands, sort of get temptation away from himself, um, in addition to preparing Harry for all of the things that he's going to have to go through. And just to go along with that point, I think that's an excellent point, point. Um, and I don't want to get into this now. We can wait until we get to the end of the chapter. But, you know, Harry does ask, what does Dumbledore, what mm-hmm. do you see, mm-hmm. you know, in the mirror? And, uh, you know, now that we've read all the books and we know about all the Hallows, um, I mean, Dumbledore... He wanted that power. You know, there was a time in his life where he wanted, and maybe he doesn't trust himself. So I think that's a very, very good point. Well, we see that it's not long, you know, after the dinner that Harry decides to use his cloak well. He can't resist well, the urge well, well, to well, use relative, well, again. Well, well, his relative, but he, uh, he gets the itch and he wants to use it. And he doesn't wake Ron up, you know, this... You know, he feels this is his father, this was his father's, and uh, just for this once, you know, for the first time, he wants to use it by himself. And of course, it's him breaking rules out of bed at night, which we'll see, I think, pretty much in every single book, you know, him, you know, him and Ron are, are... always out of bed at night. They're doing something out of bed at night in every single book. Always, but this is a rule that he will break many, many times. Yeah. I want to talk about the Screaming Book. What do you guys think about that? Because in my head, I guess, um, when I was younger, I kind of thought it was almost like an alarm system. Like, Mm -hmm. all of the books in the restricted section would do that if you went in there without permission or something like that. Like, if you were trying to read something you shouldn't be reading, they would shriek. Or maybe at a certain time they start doing, like, you know, because it's after hours. What do you guys think? Did you have a thought on that? That's exactly how I pictured it was, like, an alarm system. Mm -hmm. Okay. Especially since, unlike the monster book of monsters, when it's closed, you have control over it again. This continues after the book is closed, Mm -hmm. which suggested to me that it was something like an alarm that was placed upon the book rather than a quality that was intrinsic to the book itself. Like it's a book of banshees. And yeah, just yeah. which would make sense that it opens, <laughs> screams closed, silent. Right. But for the, the scream to persist even after it's put back mm-hmm. uh, seems to suggest that it's a detection device. Right. I do think it's interesting that the first place he goes with the cloak is to the, restrict, the restricted section where he's still pursuing sort of Snape, still trying to, I'm, I'm using this in quotes, defeat evil. Like his first venture breaking the rules is still in pursuit of finding the person who's trying to get sh- what will we will find out as the Sorcerer's Stone. So Instead of just exploring right. or flying around invisible on his broomstick <laughs> right. or some sort of fun 11-year-old thing. So it does it does show Harry's character is generally, he breaks rules, but it's generally for yeah. a good intention, good purposes. Right. Yeah. Of course, when the book screams, we have another detail that appears to confirm 
that Snape is our guy. Um, but is it is it Filch? Filch and Snape goes again. to Snape and says, "You asked me to come directly to you, Professor. If anyone was wandering around at night, and here we think, oh, you know, Snape is curious about what's going on. He wants to." Uh, be in control of movements in the night at the castle. In actuality, we know there's a much more benign and uh, positive explanation that Snape has recruited Filch to be on the lookout for Quirrell. Mm -hmm. Because Snape knew from the Halloween episode that something not quite right was going on there. Um, which again explains the limp that we saw uh, in the last chapter as well. Of course, all of these details are behind the scenes right now, shrouded from our view, and so we're just thinking, oh, Snape was, you know, he's in cahoots with um, Filch, and that's one more mark against him. Mm -hmm. um, so Harry sneaks into an unused classroom to get away from Snape and Filch, and that's where he finds the Mirror of Erised. Uh, which is just sitting in a classroom with an open door, mm -hmm. not even a closed door, not a locked door, just an open door, um, which is very inviting. And I just, I wonder what you guys think about that. There's so many situations like this. I wonder if Dumbledore left the door ajar for Harry to kind of stumble into because later Dumbledore warns him against the mirror and so, I don't know, I just feel like there's some very powerful magical objects that are just kind of left lying around at Hogwarts for students to stumble upon. Mm -hmm. My issue is that Fluffy is already standing guard, apparently over the Sorcerer's Stone, but the secret ingredient to mm -hmm. Dumbledore's plan, Miravera said, is sitting in the un unused classroom with the door ajar. And I'm wondering, you know, we're now Christmas. Halloween was when there was an attempt yeah. to steal the Sorcerer's Stone. And all, all of the enchantments are not yet in place. Yeah, so either it's taken months to get these enchantments in place mm -hmm. and Dumbledore hasn't had this idea yet, or it seems on the last page of this chapter, we'll jump ahead just to this detail, Dumbledore says, if you ever do run across it, you will now be prepared. Mm -hmm. So it almost feels like Dumbledore is playing the puppet master mm -hmm. again, that he gave Harry the invisibility cloak, knowing that Harry would go out, stumble across the mirror of Erised, learn how to use it, and now he gets to say in this really cryptic way, if you ever run across it again, wink, wink, yeah. you'll be prepared. You'll, you'll know what to expect. There are there's a lot of issues I have, even with my own reconstruction of what Dumbledore's logic could have been, because Harry accidentally stumbles across right. the Mirror of Erised. Mm -hmm. It's not, like, placed in his path as right. something... He doesn't even really know where he is no. in the school. It, and it's not inevitable. So, I, I have a hard time piecing together all of those um, elements in a coherent way that doesn't leave me with the conclusion that there was some really lax security on the Sorcerer's Stone yeah. right around Christmas time. Like it makes me think, is it just like sitting in that last room, just like in the middle of the floor? Or like, what's it in right now? Is it at least in a box or right. a lock? Like, yeah. what's the situation? I mean, there's still the fire circle. 
Yeah, <laughs> fire circle was really good. And I, you know, I imagine the chessmen and the flying keys and the potions, all that's in place. And then it's just sitting on the floor. That's what it is in my head. Until the mirror's in place. So I have a theory, kind of a theory, that, like what you said with the door sort of being ajar, that Dumbledore gave Harry this cloak and he wanders out of bed, which at this point Dumbledore knows Harry's a rule breaker, so mm-hmm. probably is to be expected that he's going to wander out of bed. Right. And I almost feel like it's a bit of a trap for Harry to go in so that Dumbledore can see who Harry truly is at his core. Because he, we know that he knows Harry has this destiny that he's supposed to defeat Voldemort, and he knows that Voldemort's matched him as his, as his equal, and we know Dumbledore knows all of these things. So how much easier is it to relate to someone in the right way when you know what the deepest desires of their heart are like if you could look at your neighbor and see their deepest desires you would know what they're capable of and what kind of person they would be to handle power and even something like the invisibility cloak you know Dumbledore couldn't take it but if he goes in and we know Dumbledore has seen Harry in this room before later Mm -hmm. because he Mm -hmm. says like you know I don't need a cloak of invisibility to become invisible so what if he sets Harry into this trap basically to see what Harry sees in the mirror so that he can see what kind of boy he's truly dealing with and then of course Dumbledore it doesn't change Harry's destiny at all I mean he's still set to defeat Voldemort but it does change how Dumbledore relates to him and I think that that's really important because how Dumbledore relates to Harry really builds Harry's character and the confidence and trust he even has in himself. So that I, is brilliant. I love it. I'm on board. That is absolutely brilliant. We also know Dumbledore knows what Harry sees. And he knows what Ron sees. He tells them, yeah. Harry, you saw your family. Ron, you saw yourself, you know, getting praise, you know, finally being on top. But nobody else can see what other people see in the mirror. So not only has Dumbledore told us that he can be invisible without a cloak, but apparently he has this really rare capacity to see what other people are seeing in the mirror. Well, he could have even heard Ron and Harry talking about yeah. it to one another. You know, Ron saying, like, that's, I'm head boy. He's, right. I picture Dumbledore that's standing what, there. That's what I much like. more benign He's just eavesdropping Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's yeah. how I... And then eventually that even equips Dumbledore to give Ron the Deluminator in Book 7 because he knows where Ron's weaknesses are and he knows where Harry's weaknesses are and their strengths and it just helps him relate to them and sort of puppet master them, like you said, in a better way and in a way that truly develops the entire story and their friendship. Mm. I, I like the original theory of that, you know, he is the puppet master. He left the, the door ajar. Somehow, I don't know how, but he knew. Like, he knew Harry was going to see this, and Harry was going to need to see this in order to, in the very end, you know, get the stone and, and defeat Quirrell and, and all that. Um I still like my explanation that Dumbledore is just crazy, magically powerful, rather than just a creeper who is eavesdropping. I think that's a much more. <laughs> I think that's a much more dramatic that's explanation. Fine. You can you can think. That. Yeah. To your original question, how would that affect how we treat people? I think dramatically. Oh yeah. If if it's the case that what we desire. Um, drives who we are, who who we become, 
what decisions we make and how we live every moment of our lives, and I think that is true, um, then knowing the deepest desire of someone's heart would be the most powerful kind of knowledge you could ever have of them. Mm -hmm. Right. And Dumbledore has that now. And I think it's interesting that Dumbledore holds on to his mm-hmm. and doesn't share it. Mm. Unless it really is the socks. It's not. It's not. It's not. Because when he tries on the ring, yeah. that's proof that shows in book you. six that he's still struggling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, it's interesting. You know, we see that Harry... Um, he sees his family. Ron sees himself um, as head boy. Um, but there's there's like a desire underneath these things. What Harry desires is belonging. Mm-hmm. What Ron desires is um, success, Standing accomplishment. Out. Yeah, the praise that doesn't uh, get muddied by living in the shadow of the rest of his family. Um, but... We see that Harry can't eat. He'd seen his parents, but now he'd almost forgotten about Flamel. The thing that drove him when he initially had the invisibility cloak um, to go break the rules in the restricted section of the library, the thing that had been consuming him and his friends for weeks prior, um, the thing that really has huge implications so far in, in the plot of the story, he thinks that a professor is out to steal this thing He's personally had his life put in danger as a result. And all of a sudden, what did it matter if Snape stole it, really? Harry is confronted with the possibility of grabbing hold of the thing that his, his heart desires most uh, through the mirror of Erised. And everything else that seemingly consumed his heart is immediately relativized. It fades away, mm-hmm. and it is totally insignificant by comparison. He he becomes single-minded. Um, nothing else seems like it really matters in light of this prospect. Um, I just find that an interesting illustration of how human beings in general react in pursuit of our desires that the prospect of grabbing hold of the thing that we want more than anything else um, turns us into the kind of people that misjudge the relative importance of everything else every other form of obligation um, or responsibility or pursuit you know, sort of fades to nothing in light of this overarching grand desire and how easy it is to for them to uh to belittle the other person's most ardent desire right because they immediately and it's not in the movie in the movie mm-hmm. you know harry has that oh how can it show the future my parents are dead and then charles off and that's the end of the scene right and in the book, they have this squabble in front of the mm-hmm, mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, let me have another look. Oh, you had it to yourself all last night. Give me more time. You're just holding the Quidditch cup. What's interesting about that? I want to see my parents. Don't push me. And then they realize that they're yelling and they hear something in the corridor. And it's just so telling. You know, we. It 
totally eclipses. Our, our desires totally eclipse what anyone else could possibly want. And we don't even see how it's relevant. We don't even see how it's important to them. Because how can it be more important than what I want? That was a really reminiscent scene, I thought. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody else saw it, but I heard um, the echoes of Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels very... The Smeagol account, Mm -hmm. where you've got this innocent little hobbit, they see the ring, they're both enchanted by it, but immediately it turns into... Oh, it's, it's, it's mine. And... It, it makes me wonder if um, they're not interrupted by Mrs. Norris. How far does this conflict go? Yeah. Uh, in Lord of the Rings, it immediately went to murder. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just interesting that in these stories, the Ring of Power and the Mirror of Erised um, function in not identical, but very similar ways. Um, representing the possibility of attaining what the heart desires most. Uh, They are um, literary devices that find their meaning in human desire. Um, Both of them immediately creating conflict, but I I also think that that's a remarkably true-to-life depiction of what happens. Mm. That unchecked misplaced desire when it begins to relativize every other form of obligation and desire in our lives creates conflict Um, especially when someone starts standing in the way of that pursuit I have one more theory about the door being ajar go for it Um, so I don't, I mean, perhaps Snape was just patrolling the corridor, but he's very close to the mirror. He's very close to the room, and the door was ajar. And I just wonder if he wasn't, I mean, I think he and Harry would see the same thing in the mirror. I mean, probably see Lily. And so I wonder if, I just picture Snape sitting in front of this mirror, like, with Lily. I don't know, behind him. Oh, that hurts me so much. I mean, it's, it's a stretch, probably, but... No, that, uh, that actually really fits well. Oh, man. Mm. I just think particularly because Lily is most likely on his mind, with Harry being this being his first year, this would be a way for him to spend time with her, see her, and remind himself of why he's protecting this boy that is the son of someone he hates, and also someone he loves. So you're thinking the door is ajar because that's Snape where Snape was, was yeah. when Filch called for him. Yeah. Why else would the door be ajar? Wow. I do like that. That's really good, too. Yeah. I also, don't know. I mean, it, I, I, that makes perfect sense. Why it would be Normally, a, a room like this would be locked with the mirror in there. It yeah. could be all of them, though, because Dumbledore could have known that Snape needed to be reminded of Lily to, it's like, just puppet motivating himself. I mean, I thing. still think Dumbledore could be behind it, and all of these amazing theories could be true. Gosh, Dumbledore. Mm, that makes me so sad. Oh, it's so <laughs> sad. Mm. Well, there's, there's a progression um, in Harry that I wanted to point out that in the midst of this really sweet heartwarming 
chapter, um, except when Crystal shares her theories. <laughs> this, this overall, this heartwarming chapter, um, we see the dark side of of desire with the mirror of Irsid. Um We in the span of three or four pages, Harry goes from uh, he 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 sees the mirror of Erised for the first time. All of his other um, pursuits begin to turn into nothing. He has conflict with Ron that is interrupted. But then in the middle of page 212, we're told, Harry only had one thought in his head, which was to get back in front of the mirror, and Ron wasn't going to stop him. Ron has become... I mean, this is the language of enemy threat, obstacle, antagonist. Um, and I feel like in, in three or four pages, um, Rowling is just, she's giving us, a, I think, a, a master class in human nature and what happens when ultimate desires are thwarted. That the um, disintegration spreads, the frustration um, expands, and the dysfunction grows up from um, sort of uh, obligations that are shirked as this narrow-mindedness takes hold to fights that emerge to all of a sudden everyone, even my closest friend, is an enemy to be defied. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the way that she describes that, there's defiance in Harry's voice. Ron is not going to stop me. I must get this thing. Um, I don't know. I, I find that this is one of the most insightful chapters, certainly of the first book. I would argue of the entire canon um, because it hits at the heart, very literally, of what makes human beings tick. Uh, I think it's, it's profoundly insightful, but it shows us the dark side of desire, and it doesn't pull its punches, mm. even though it's couched in all sorts of heartwarming narrative details. Last thing for me, I think. Um, Can't, Crystal. No, no, no. Mm. This is. It just reminds me of the quote on Kendra Dumbledore's grave, where your, I think it's like whatever your treasure is, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Dumbledore picked those words, and so I think he's particularly someone. Well, we assume Dumbledore picked those words. Harry assumes it in the seventh book. Um, it, it just shows, like, whatever your heart is desiring, that's where your treasure is. And I, I just think that's really indicative of our hearts, I think. Wherever we're spending our time and our money, that's where our, generally our hearts are reflecting what we love most. Well, we see that, um, you know, there was, he ends, or what you were saying, Trevor, with Ron wasn't going to stop him. You know, he has He's making a beeline, and he said there's nothing to stop him from staying there all night with his family, nothing at all, except, and I think there's only one person that can really stop him, and that's when Albus Dumbledore uh, speaks up, mm -hmm. you know, out of a dark corner in the room. So, back again, Harry. And uh, that's when Harry's insides turn to ice. Mm -hmm. You know, he knows, oh, I've been caught. Um, and that's when I think this really telling scene, you know, transpires where uh, Dumbledore mm -hmm. is just pouring into Harry here. 
um, and truly, I guess, sets him on his path. I mean, this is really the first time that, I guess, Dumbledore is giving a, a heart-to-heart, you know, to Harry. It was right here. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's reflective of Dumbledore now knowing what Harry's heart is, and he can relate to him differently. Because again, you know, it doesn't change what Dumbledore knows Harry's path is, but it does change how he relates to him. And now he's someone he can love and admire and probably pity in some ways. And trust. Yeah. I think it's it's interesting, this description of the mirror of Erised, that it shows not your face but your heart's desire. I've always thought, man, that would be wonderful to have that sort of self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, Dumbledore says this mirror will give us neither knowledge or truth. I think our discussion has already revealed that we would probably disagree that there's a profound kind of knowledge and truth um, about who we are as people um, that would help us even understand ourselves better. Uh, And yet I was having this thought that a normal mirror functions in quite the same way. And and here's, here's where I was going with that. He says that the happiest man on earth would be able to use the mirror of Erised like a normal mirror. That is, he would look into it and see himself exactly as he is. The discontent person, however, looking into the mirror of Erised, wouldn't see himself as he is. He would see more than he is. Uh, the mirror would reveal the discontent of his heart by showing him not who he is, but who he wants to be. He would see more. A normal mirror works in the opposite way, though, I think. That in a normal mirror, the discontent person looks into it and sees less than he or she is. Um, Because the discontent often manifests itself in feelings of insecurity, not measuring up, not really possessing what you you actually do possess. Mm. Uh, You actually underestimate the gifts and blessings that you have because discontent poisons and shades your vision of yourself. Which got me to think, rather than wishing that I had a a mirror of Erised that could tell me exactly what it is that I want, what makes me tick, um, looking into a regular mirror can at least show me if I'm living in discontentment rather than Mm -hmm. in contentment and security. Mm. Hmm. So we're all going to take uh, take that one, go home and look in the mirror a little bit, see what we see. Um, well, it looks like uh, we've said all we have to say about the mirror of Erised, and that brings another riveting edition of the Harry Potter Book Club to a close. Um, friends, I want to remind you, Uh, that you can follow us on Twitter. You can send comments or questions to us at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, and we'd love to feature uh, your contribution on an upcoming episode of the Harry Potter Book Club. Next time, we'll be on Chapter 13, Nicholas Flamel, and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone will continue progressing toward its culmination. With that said, Mischief Mischief Managed! managed.